The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life, and today is a very special day for me. Of course, every interview and every guest is very special, but this is the very first time that I have uh, broadcast the show from the Voice America offices here in Phoenix, Arizona. The weather is wonderful, but I will not gloat over my uh, East Coast uh, compatriots, Uh, but it is a pleasure to be here today, and it's a really fun show we have lined up today, working across generations. Now, unfortunately, one of our my guests, uh, Alia Brown, was unable to join us today because of a, a last-minute commitment that came up, but we have a wonderful uh, new and special guest, and I will introduce her in a moment. Uh, but one of the uh, guests uh, that uh, has been on the show before, I love to have her on the show, is Adrian Russell. Uh, as my listeners know, Adrian is a museum evangelist, uh, literary artist, and nonprofit consultant based in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, she is also the avid uh, blogger at Cabinet of Curiosity. Curiosities, and many of you also will know that she has co-hosted and continues to co-host a series of uh, chats on Twitter having to do with uh, the museum's responsibility in a a civic society, especially after all of the things that have happened in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, and other places over this past year. Our surprise guest is Lord's Santa Maria Weller. She comes to us from Florida. She is at uh, the uh, Smathers uh, Gallery in at the University of Florida. She is a recent uh, museum studies graduate, and uh, while she is lo- working in a technically in a library, she is involved in developing their own uh, exhibitions. So, uh, we actually have a uh, gen, uh, a millennial with lords joining us a gen xer as we say with adrian and of course you know that i am 
the last of the uh, baby boom generation. And, you know, I have, as I've traveled across the country and met with uh, so many of, of uh, my listeners and uh, potential guests, I think it's very interesting. We span uh, such a, a long history, and the history over the, say, the last uh, uh, 40 years in our business has changed so drastically. It has changed externally with uh, certainly digital technologies uh, coming uh, to the forefront. We have uh, digital natives now. We have those of us uh, who can remember dial-up telephones. As a friend of mine uh, uh, mentioned yesterday as we were getting off of our cell phones, he said, well, I'm going to hang up now. And then he said, you know, I haven't hung up a phone probably in 15 years. So there are a lot of little things that remind us that we uh, come from different generations and probably have some different experiences and backgrounds, but of course we all have been brought together by uh, our love of museums. So I thought this would be a fun chat today. So without further ado, Adrian and Lourdes, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, that's wonderful. I tell you, you know, uh, because we're not all in the same place right now, I will do a little bit of a traffic copness. Uh, and I think, Adrian, I'd like to start with you. And if you could just share a little bit about yourself, especially, you know, how you first became interested in museums and uh, it, perhaps your first museum experience. You know, I think in the time we've known each other, I've never actually asked you that question. Well, it's really funny. My relationship um, with museums is, is a long one. It's probably one of my longest-standing relationships in my life, which I'm pretty proud of. I <laughs> um, Actually, I remember going uh, to art museums, particularly as a young, young person. I was probably eight or nine years old, and my mom would take um, my siblings and I to uh, the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City. Um, on Saturdays, and we would just roam around that building. It's, a, it's an amazing um, encyclopedic art museum, and, and so you're able to just see material culture from, from all over, and it, it, it was, it just felt like a big castle, and I just loved it. It was, it was just a way of just getting out of town without leaving town, if that makes sense. Um, it was a way of just kind of transforming uh, your experience, and I just loved it. I and so that's always been kind of like my gateway is, is right there. So I've, I've always really loved the idea of, of a place where all um, the, the products of, 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 of material culture are, are there, you know, the things that spring forth from your imagination and you can make these things and then someone has cared enough to, to keep those things um, for others to, to view. Um, so that's just kind of my, my experience. So by the time I was able to, you know, take that breakfast, prerequisite kind of field trip to the museum that everybody takes from there. In grade school, I'd already been there so many times that I just felt like um, my home. So that's, that's the first museum I actually remember visiting. Oh, that's, uh, that's a wonderful story. And, and uh, what I hear in your voice, too, uh, is that feeling of family, yes. you know, of, it, of it being just an extension of your home. Mm-hmm. Lords, so. uh, how about you? What was uh, how, how did you become first interested in museums? So it's very shockingly very similar and not shocking at all to Adrian's experience. Um, as, a, as a young child, I was probably about eight or nine, maybe ten. Um, my family took that quintessential 
vacation to Washington, D.C., Mm-hmm. Um, and visiting the various Smithsonian institutions and then the Peterson House across from the Ford Theater really really made an impact on me. And um, I'm first-generation American, and my, my parents, they speak English. It's a limited English, though, and I remember being extremely impressed that this is what they wanted to share with us, taking us to these museums, but at the same time, seeing the difficulty my parents had accessing some of the information available because it was all in English. And wow. that always sort of stuck with me is making that um, accessible to a wider audience. I grew up in South Florida, large Hispanic community where many people I knew, you know, English was not their first language. And so making, I had such a great experience at the Smithsonian that I wanted to share that with, with a broader part of America. So that really, that's kind of what started it, and it just, the museum visits increased after that. That's great. Uh, that's wonderful. Did you, did you find that uh, you were comfortable sort of helping provide that, that bridge for your parents, something that you could uh, share together? I, I think at first I wasn't, you know, I was, I was young. It, it wasn't yeah. a conscious thing I was doing. As I became older, um, and certainly once I got into, you know, my undergraduate was in photography, and my graduate work was in museum studies, um, it became more of something I actively tried to do. I knew it was something they enjoyed. And so my mother in particular, I would seek out exhibitions that I knew she would enjoy, but she probably would not attend by herself. And I would, I'd invite her along, I'd take her, and I would serve sort of as this informal tour guide. And a few times I found other people were following me and listening. <laughs> and that, made, that part made it uncomfortable because, you know, I knew the kind of things my mother was interested in. And so I spoke to some of that. And sometimes I just translated text, just made it easier and faster for her to, you know, absorb all the information. Um, but once other people started following along, I... Something kind of switched, and I was like, "Hey, I could, I could actually just do this all the time. This could be my job." <laughs> it reminds me of of last week's program where I was talking with with uh, Nick Gray and uh, on, who is the founder of Museum Hack and uh, it, uh, a, a sort of an alternative um, tour program uh, based in uh, New York uh, right now at, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he said a very similar thing, that he was sort of giving his friends tours of the Met, that, you know, showing them his favorite artwork, and people started to tag along. So, you know, <laughs> Lords, there, you, there, it, it, it really, it's a, it's, I think it's almost a prerequisite for the jobs that we do. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great, and so Adrian, uh, just mm-hmm. a little bit back to you. So so obviously, um, you know, you you loved museums. I love that phrase you use. Sort of, it was you know, getting out of town without having to get out of town. Uh, so, what led you then to decide to uh, uh, pursue a career in museums? Well, actually, it really felt quite accidental. Um, at the time when I was in uh, undergraduate school, I was actually. Um, studying nonprofit leadership, and I was in AmeriCorps. And um, my term of service, where you know, you're assigned to a place for a year, um, was coming to an end. And I knew that I had to find another 
job. And my sister at the time was working um, at the Nelson Atkins Museum in the education department. And she said, well, this is a job. You may not want it, but, you know, it's sad. I'm like, no, I'm about to be unemployed. I want a job. <laughs> and, and as a bonus, it's like, it's at the Art Museum. You know, great. Um, I like art. Let's see what they're talking about. Um, so just on a complete just whim, I went in interview for the job. And um, it wasn't easy. It was it was several interviews. Um, but I was able to secure that position. Um, as a program assistant in the education department, and that was my first actual um, museum, paying museum gig, I should say. Um, and so it was very interesting because I've, I've been there so often, and I was so familiar with that collection. I just really felt like just being a visitor was just a huge, huge shortcut. Um, and I was able to take a very, very visitor-centric approach uh, to the work that I was, was doing because of who I was. I'm like, I'm that person. I'm not coming with the art history degree. I'm not coming from that background. I'm coming purely from um, just a love and appreciation of, of the works. And so that was... Maybe very different from some of my counterparts, but actually I thought that that was one of my assets is that I was able to to translate that experience for my coworkers. Um, so just little things that they wouldn't, wouldn't really pretty much tend to, but to me stood out because I really wasn't a hard historian. So when they started using a lot of jargon, I was able to say, now, what does that mean? <laughs> you yeah. know, to explain yeah. that for someone who doesn't have an artistry degree. Um, so that was why I did So it really was just a pure, pure um, happy accident, as they say. Well, and, and so... Um so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So you mm-hmm. you 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 uh, stumbled, uh, and I use that word quite lovingly because I too <laughs> stumbled in my into my museum career. Uh, but so you started working in a museum, and it was then after that that you decided to go back for a. Uh, you have a master's in uh, a master of, of arts and liberal studies with a concentration in in museum studies. So it was yes. after that. Okay, so you worked in a yes. museum and then you went back uh, to get a little bit more education. That's correct. Um, the, the museum where I, where I was employed had a kind of a reciprocal uh, agreement with a local university, which is actually one of their um, museum trustees. And so you were able to take um, courses in, in classwork to help you advance in your museum career, which was amazing. Um, so that's what I decided to do. I was like, well, if I want to do this long term, I could kind of see that's where it was going. If I wanted to um, progress in that field, I saw that the jobs that would be um, advertised were asking for that higher level education. Whether it was necessarily warranted or not was, was you know, up for debate, but I knew that that's what I needed. <laughs> so, <laughs> Interesting. I, I got it. Interesting. You know, I I think that is, uh, and and I want to talk about it a little little bit more. It is one of the uh, distinctions I think, uh, certainly between say my generation, where while I have an advanced degree, it is not in museum studies. Uh, it's in a you know it's it's in biology, which was my uh, my classical training, and of course I came through the curatorial route uh, and learned my museum work on the job. And as I talk to more people my age, that seems to be the uh, uh, the the 
patter. Uh, we we learned on the job. We worked on the job. We did a lot of in uh, what we would call in-service training. Uh, I did go back to get my uh, master's in at the uh, in music uh, uh, certification at the uh, Getty program, the um, Museum Management Institute MMI. But other than that, I really am pretty uh, self-taught. So it's uh, I, I I find it interesting that uh, people have. Uh, in in uh, your generation, uh, Adrian, ha- felt the the strong need that the requirements really were. If you wanted to advance in the field, you had to have some kind of uh, master's or, or certification. Yeah, I, I really do feel like um, that was just where the the market was going. Um, mm-hmm. It's not impossible and I, and I, I'm a huge fan of, of learning on the job I mean and, and actually having the degree it, it, it gives you a little bit of a shortcut but you only have to learn every place you go every collection you work with every I mean that's just something you can't know in advance and you're going to have to learn once you get there but it's getting there sure is is the issue and I, I find it really interesting that you say that a lot of people in your generational cohort kind of came out of a different way but these are the folks that are hiring that were hiring me. <laughs> 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 and why they felt that that was necessary for me and not for them. <laughs> I, I, I completely agree on this. <laughs> this is, you know, this is why I got the degree because the jobs were not there. They were requiring it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah. So, so, so needed, but I do. Okay, yeah. That's uh, okay. Touche <laughs> to both of you. Um, and uh, uh, so, Lords, just uh, we have a couple of minutes before break. Uh, uh, can you share with us? Sort of, you said that you had a you originally had a degree in photography, and then um, did you work in a museum before you? Uh, uh, went for your master's degree, or did you feel that you had to have the master's degree first? Um, so I've actually never worked in a museum ever. Here's the really interesting part. Um, I I was very lucky in that I worked um, I worked for the digital library section of the libraries at the University of Florida, um, and I served as the museum liaison, so we did a lot of digitization projects for um, especially the campus museums, but other statewide um, museums as well, and because of my photography training and my interest in museums, that was my role um, in helping them just schedule digitization, how to handle art objects, what sort of requirements they needed, all the different formats that they would need for their items. And I really wanted to make that transition to working in a museum. And every time I would speak to a different person who would come to these sort of jobs that they would hire us for, um, they, just, they would all tell me, you have, to get a, you have to get a museum studies master's. Like, no one's going to hire you. You can come intern with us, and that's great. And that'll go only so far. But you'll never be able to live and actually have a full-time benefited job without this degree. So I said, okay, and because I was already employed by the university, very similar to Adrian as well, they um, helped fund a large portion of my master's. And we luckily have a wonderful museum studies program at UF, Mm -hmm. so I took part in that. And throughout that time, um, I did intern and volunteer for the both the Harn Museum of Art on campus and the Matheson Museum, which is our local historical society. 
And but a lot of my work dealt with museums and digitization and online collections. And that's kind of where I I came at it and that's where my expertise lied. Mhm. Um and then again just pure luck the the libraries um, were really looking to formalize a program. Um, it's a growing trend in academic libraries. We see the value in museums. We have these amazing special collections. But the students don't know about them. So right. we need to get them out there, get them interpretation, explain how these amazing objects all fit together and how they help them not only in their coursework, but sort of help them understand the world as well. Great, um, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're uh, uh, not to cut you off, but we do have to take a couple of these breaks, and I know you probably need a sip of water. I do. Uh, so we will be back in just two minutes. As you can tell, this is just a, dis- uh, conver- a fun dis- conversation that is just getting started. So uh, stay tuned. We will be back in a moment. Uh, This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. 
or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert with Museum Life. And today we are talking about uh, the generations. And I don't think it's a generation gap per se, but I think that there are some things that uh, with so many of us continuing to work in museums uh, and uh, and having different ages of people working in museums, there are probably some misunderstandings and misconceptions, possibly even some stereotypes that I hope that we can uh, uh, bring to light so that we can all learn and work better together. And I am here having uh, this conversation with Adrian Russell and Lourdes Santa Maria Weller. And so uh, welcome uh, to both of you and thanks for being on the show today. Uh, Adrian, I'm just going to uh, ask you the hard question because I know you'll give me a, a, a straight answer. So, what's it like uh, working? Let's let's sort of we'll break this up since you are the middle child here. The, you're the Gen Xer. Uh, what's it like working with uh, older folks? And then, what's it like maybe working with uh, um, new um, uh, younger people who are just entering the field? You want to want to take that question? Sure. Um, actually, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm an outlier for saying this, but I actually really enjoy working with older people. <laughs> um, I've, and I've that's always, why I love um, you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've always um, really enjoyed just learning and, and, and just getting knowledge. And sometimes you can only get that by just living. So um, there's something to be said for, for the, the, the brain and the wealth of knowledge that comes from experience. Um, and I've really always enjoyed having mentors, and, and those typically tend to be people that are a little older than, than myself, um, but that's amazing. They, they, if, if you can cultivate those relationships, then you, you'll have someone who, who is really willing to, to help you navigate um, and go to bat for you when necessary, um, and, and that, to me, can only be a positive thing. Um, where I think sometimes it becomes a little less positive is if the, if the relationships are seen as extremely um, competitive. Um, I know our market, economic market, has shifted so much that a lot of people who probably would have seen themselves um, getting ready to retire or, or move on to a different uh, stage in their lives has had to stay in the market and had to stay working. Um, and so... I know that they can feel a certain amount of, of push because here's this generation coming behind them whom um, they've probably helped train and, and they're fully prepared and ready to take the reins and the person ahead of them is like, well, I'm really not prepared to or ready to let that go. Um, so that's really kind of, I think, the biggest challenge you'll see is that you have so many people who are ready to, like, you know, I've spent 10 years in this industry and I'm ready to go and you, you train me so well and you've done your job and now it's my turn and, and then I'm going to have you saying, well, not quite. <laughs> and and it's, it's for different reasons. I mean, like yeah. I said, the market is so different now that a lot of people's retirement is not what they imagined it to be. Um, and, and they're not going to have the same career path as their parents. Um, so they know that they're going to have to keep working. So they have to find something to do. And a lot of times that's the spot you think you're just going to find yourself in and, and it's still occupied. Um, but most of the experiences I've had working internationally with people that are older than myself have been very positive, and I've, I've taken really great lessons from it. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, working with people younger than me, I'm all for that. I really don't want... The one, the one thing I don't want to do in my work is to become kind of entrenched in the way I work. 
And um, you can only learn about that if someone's around you that has a different experience and different skill set. Um, so all the things I'm doing right now with terms of social media and digitization, I have to give full credit to someone who's in that millennial generation who said, hey, do you realize this is happening? This is what's coming up. Um, you need to pay attention to this. You know, and, and that's where that came from. I mean, it really wasn't me waking up and saying, oh, well, you know, what's this Twitter thing? Let me check that out. I mean, it was someone basically pointing it to that thing and saying, this is what you really need to pay attention to. This is where, you know, museums are going to start communicating to people in this realm, and you probably really want to start paying attention to that. Um, so that's the, the, the positive side of that. The, the not the positive side may be that um, I've encountered some, some people in that, in that generation who don't... Um, feel or don't believe or don't understand that there is some really hard dues paying that's going to have to happen. Um, because we've told them you need to be educated to a certain extent, because they've, we've been told they need to be prepared to take these jobs and, and they've been trained at such a high level and they've interned and they've done all these things, they are ready to go. Um, but then there's that experience level that's not quite there. So there's a, there's a disconnect between what they've been trained to do and what they actually have hands-on experience doing. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily all their fault. Um, I think we have to take a little bit of responsibility for that. That's that's very interesting. Um, I, I, I just want to follow up on a couple of things that you said. Um, mm-hmm. I I think uh, uh, the the dues paying is is important. Uh, we all have to do it, no matter uh, where we are in our career, uh, even and, and no matter what age. I mean, if we mm-hmm. shift if we shift careers, if we shift tracks, we we have to. Uh, uh, sort of do some uh, things at the bottom to sort of work our way up up to the top. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, I, I participated in in a couple of uh, uh, conferences oh, probably about seven, eight years ago, and there was a real concern that there was a big leadership gap, uh, that those of us who had been in high-level uh, museum uh, leadership positions were, in fact, retiring uh, or going, uh, going off to uh, be... Um, uh, consultants or do other things, and there, there simply by the numbers, there were fewer uh, uh, people of, of Gen X who were ready to take on those positions. But more importantly, from some work that the Pew uh, Trust did in interviewing uh, uh, Gen Xers, there was a concern that there wasn't uh, a commitment to do the do the job the way we quote had done the job. Now the way. Uh, Baby boomers um, oftentimes were doing jobs and continue to do the jobs are not necessarily healthy. Uh, someone mm-hmm. who who doesn't have who who uh, uh, sacrifices their family time, their personal time to always be in the museum, always be working, uh, is is wonderful uh, for the museum, but perhaps is uh, is losing out a little bit on the other parts of life. And uh, uh, there has been a perception that Gen Xers are a little bit uh, more uh, perhaps practical. Um, uh, baby boomers, of course, we would say selfish. Uh, to <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to realize that you know uh, one person probably can't do everything that is expected of a museum director, and maybe that uh, job description of the museum director needs to change a, bit, a little bit. Uh, have you run into that, Adrian, in any any of your uh, discussions with your peers? That it's like yeah. I've seen that job, and you can have it. Yeah, I mean, really, that that's what's so funny is that I don't know where. It- 
you know, there's that weird perception of of people kind of at the front end of the next who were being slackers and 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 it just kind of stuck for a while. And I think it came from that fact that you know a lot of people in my in my generation cohort are really concerned with work life balance, and that's because we we saw our parents work themselves, you know, just to the bone. Um, and, and not have a lot of balance in time for family because they were just working so hard um, to, to get their families to a certain level. So we are, and I'm just speaking for myself very selfishly, I am very concerned with work-life balance. So a collaborative workspace um, where, where responsibilities can be shared is, is really important, um, particularly if I was a director, if I'm leading something. If I've done my job correctly and I've assembled people um who are skilled and talented and gifted, I'm going to trust that they can do this work. Um, and so I don't have to be the one who's there 24 seven. Um, I'm, I'm, that's, I don't want that. So if, if that does make me lazy, then I'll own that. <laughs> that's what I want to call it. I mean, I personally think that, you know, you actually have to get out and live life in, in order to inform your work. So if I'm trapped in a museum 24-7, it's going to be really hard for me to, to know what's going on outside and how that's going to affect what happens inside. Um, so, yeah, I have encountered that a couple of times where, you know, someone's like, well, you know, you're, you're going to start it at 9 in the morning and then your program's going to take you till 10 at night. And I kind of go, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. Lourdes, I want to get you in on the conversation. Uh, how have you uh, sort of perceived, uh, you know, coming coming in now and and uh, particularly seeing this transition between what to be, you know, what, what we might call, uh, you know, leadership leadership by individual versus a shared leadership model. Um, so really, I just want to say also, I'm sitting over here just nodding my head at everything Adrian says, um, just totally agreeing with all of it. Um, in, interestingly, in the, in the university, we do have a shared governance model that we, mm-hmm. we have recently moved to, um, and that is, I have found, a lot more appealing to, to younger employees as well, um, being able to have a voice especially when it comes to things like the work-life balance and flexible work arrangements um, that so many of us I know crave. And, and I would say entirely agreeing with Adrian, especially having seen our parents who worked, you know, all day, every day, and were often told, no, we can't go do that because mom and dad have to go to work kind of thing. Um, and not not really wanting that for ourselves, wanting to, to be able to do other things, to volunteer with other organizations that we are, you know, extremely important to us. So it's, it's an interesting dichotomy as well because, you know, I mean, for me personally, yes, I want to be in charge. I want to do it all. But at the end of the day, I recognize but I can't because I also want to do these 10 other things that I really like to do, whether it's professionally or personally, so I do need that that team to to support me and back me up. Well, and I think uh, Adrian said something that that uh, is so very very important and and is uh, a, a significant shift I think in how we're uh, we're teaching leadership certainly uh, within mu- museums uh, is this idea that. Everyone uh, ha- is is good, and the leader's role is to bring in good people uh, to do the work. 
and sort of set a direction and and have the the trust that uh, that they will do that job. And and what I'm hearing you both say in very coy, sweet ways uh, is is that uh, that trust may not be there as much as it should be. Oh, well, I'll, I can stop being coy. It's, it's really not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's be honest, girls. No, I'm yeah. I, I, I really do feel that way, and, and I, I know that it's interesting because it seems to be that, you know, leaders, certain leadership roles will attract a certain kind of personality, I and mean, it takes a lot to be the, the head of anything, to be the public face and put yourself out there. I mean, it takes a strong person, and, and it takes a very committed person, and I think sometimes... Um, you can kind of get on the other end of that spectrum where you're, you're so concerned about that that it becomes a control issue um, and, and you just become kind of fixated on making sure that everything is perfect and controlled and every person's job is being handled. And, and it can be micromanaging, you, you know, a danger of micromanaging, which is never an attractive leadership model. Um, so I, I think that because I have the background in the nonprofit leadership, I, really, I was really taught to have kind of a flattened approach of governance. And that, you know, good ideas can come from anywhere. So when I was out and leading anything, I would ask everyone, you know, well, what did you want? You know, what do you want to do? How can we do this better? And I always get these strange looks like, well, why are you asking that person? Um, Why are you asking the person who's at the front desk? Why are you asking the operations person who cleans the floors? Why are you asking the phone service people what, what? I'm like, well, they see people every day. This is the front. This is much more front line than this. So why aren't we asking these folks what they think is their need and want. Yes. And so I would get a lot of pushback when I, when I led projects. It's like, well, you know, they're not the staff. Why are you asking? I'm like, no, no, no. This is who we need. So, so that, that's the shift. And I won't be quite bad at all. That, that really is a problem when, you, yeah. when you're assembling. And as much as it takes to get a museum done, and as hard as you have to work, and as much personal sacrifice as you have to, to, to put through, whether it's professional, financial, emotional, whatever it is, and to be trained and be ready to go and have someone tell you, hey, come on in, but I don't trust you to do this <laughs> yeah. work. Yeah. I mean, that can be very insulting. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's offensive. Yes. And especially if you've gone that kind of internship route where you've given months, maybe years of unpaid labor, <laughs> and now yeah. someone is, just, is finally paying you, but then telling you you can't do this work. Oh, my gosh. I, I can just imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah how offensive that would be. <laughs> Lord is I'm, and I, and I'm, I would say frustrating as well. I yeah. mean oftentimes I, I hear from, from friends and colleagues who've started new jobs and it's like, but obviously they hired me because I'm qualified. Right. Obviously, right. you know, they saw something in me that said I could do this. But then it's a different story when you get there. Um, Interesting. and so that that yeah. can be very frustrating, especially starting out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. the if if you're not given responsibility, how can you gain responsibility? Right. Exactly. Right. And I'm not saying I'm also not saying, you know, you don't have to pay certain dues. You right. you can't walk into right. a new job and expect to be given all of the authority. Right. Um, but certainly at least a a seat at the table, so to speak. Absolutely, and and just to normalize this for you a little bit, you know, obviously I've been in the museum field for many, many years. I was a director of a department at 28, uh, and no one said that, and I paid lots of dues, but at 28 no one said that that uh, I, I couldn't just take on a leadership position. So I think mm-hmm. those of us uh, who are in the baby boom generation and who have leader leadership positions need to 
hear very carefully what Lourdes and, uh, 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 and Adrian are saying. And with that, we are going to take our second break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to hear more with Adrian and Lourdes, uh, particularly about some advice that they can give their uh, peers on how to navigate this, what can be a very challenging situation. So we will be back in a moment. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Do you feel like you are alone in a desert? Often we feel alone with no place to turn for help and guidance in our troubles that always seem to be so overwhelming. Stop. Take an hour each week to tune in to Stream in the Desert with Dr. Rita Huang. Dr. Rita will share stories of people just like you, intended for you to find some inspiration in their problems and solutions. The most important thing is that you are not alone. Others have been in the same place. Share some time with us every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, and on demand on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. 
Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I am having a delightful conversation today with Adrian Russell and Lourdes Santa Maria Weller, and we are getting really honest about what it is like for all of us to be working together uh, in the museum world, coming from not only different backgrounds, but different age cohorts, and that it is a, a real challenge. And while we were on break, we were talking about, uh, before we went on break, of course, course, we were talking about sort of this trust issue and uh, people come who are moving into the museum profession, uh, uh, emerging professionals, younger professionals, are really feeling this sense of uh, mistrust, let's be honest. And I'm thinking that uh, much of that probably does come from the top. Uh, and those of us who are senior in our career, but perhaps uh, are a little nervous, perhaps we're nervous about our future, and we're also, oh, let's face it, we're not digital natives. I've had to work really hard at uh, understanding uh social media and uh, even some of my new computer programs and all of the uh, digital technologies that make my life uh, easier but also are quite a learning curve and at this stage of my career I wasn't uh, anticipating that I would have such a steep learning curve in some areas and Adrian mentioned it as well particularly in areas of digitization and social media, uh, those are areas where we can't ask our peers. We have to ask people who are old enough to be our daughters and sons. And how does that sort of change the dynamic? Uh, Lourdes, I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit uh, uh, about that. You said that one of your 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 entrees into uh, shift, you know, library and exhibit work was in this area of digitization. Uh, did you find that there was some pushback? Uh, or were you then considered the absolute expert in everything digital because... <laughs> <laughs> simply because of your birth certificate. Um, in a way, I, I was sort of given a an automatic pass as an expert um, just because of my age. And I do want to point out, though, the digital native thing is a phrase I really despise um, because working at a university, I have found it is not true. Um, these younger people, I mean, they may be comfortable with trying to use the technology, but it doesn't make them experts. And it doesn't even mean that they can do some basic, what we used to consider basic computer work, word processing, um, something like that. I encounter it with um, the students who volunteer for us very often where they tell me, oh, yes, I'm completely comfortable doing computer work. And I sit them up and, uh, okay, I need you to update this collection spreadsheet. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And they wow. say, what's a spreadsheet? <gasps> oh. And I'm like, wait, you guys, you put on there that you are comfortable with, you know, technology and computers. And they're like, well, I just do Facebook. <laughs> and then it's not even like any other social media channel. Um, so that, <laughs> so on one respect, I know I was given an automatic sort of gold star for, for knowing digitization. Um, but really, I learned it on the job. And I read books about it, and I went to trainings, and I did different things just to learn about it. But oft, a lot of times at those trainings, I was the youngest one in the room, and uh -huh. people just assumed I already knew how to do it all. Wow. And sometimes I, I, did, I did know how to do it, 
or I felt comfortable doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like to talk about, I remember using, you know, Photoshop 2. <laughs> and this, this week, Photoshop turns 25. Like, I remember using it. That's what I remember learning on. Um, so, yeah, I can feel comfortable with it. But I don't, I don't think that should automatically, we should automatically equate a younger generation with automatic expertise on anything technological. That is very interesting. So, so uh, in other words, there is a significant difference between comfort and skill level. Yes. Very, very very interesting. Now, Adrian, you were saying that in many of the uh, new things that you are learning, and certainly I would consider you a an early adopter of uh, uh, of certainly blogging uh, in our field. Uh, you are uh, you you took that on uh, quite early when most of us were still trying to you know wonder what a blog was and why it was different from our personal diary, uh, and uh, and certainly the work that you've been doing recently on uh, on Twitter. You were very active on Twitter. Uh, I I I love to follow follow you. Uh, I had to learn to follow you. Uh, and, and then the, uh, uh, the, these, these uh, hosted conversations, I think, are, is, is a very, very interesting approach uh, to a medium that for a long time I thought was just something that, that people used to follow what their, their favorite movie star had for breakfast. And you really are, are you're really taking it into a, a, a useful and a wonderful realm. Uh, 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 I always feel that you and I are talking all the time, even though we are literally miles away and may even only see each other once every couple of years. Uh, so how I, I, I'm just interested in, in your perspective on some of these things. Well, I'm, I'm really, well, thank you for saying all that. First of all, that sounds really awesome when you say it. <laughs> but um, I, I think part of the reason why I got so involved in it is because the position that I held at the time was considered kind of a, a lower level position. It was a, a very administrative position. And you didn't often have a lot of opportunities to, to share your voice. Um, so I was like, well, I have a lot of thoughts about these things, but I can't necessarily say them at work, but here's a space where I can say them. Um, you know, so I was like, let me start writing. I like to write. Let me write about, you know, museums. Let me talk about the things that are happening. So I think any kind of platform like that is a great way of just kind of getting your voice out there, no matter what stage of the game you're in. Um, so if you have thoughts about these things and you want it to share and exchange ideas, then these digital platforms is the way to go. I mean, as we all know, and, and something I'm struggling with right now is being able to afford the, the conferencing that surrounds museums. Yeah. can be very expensive. Um, and it's usually somewhere far away from me. So in the Midwest, it's usually on a coast somewhere. Um, and I can't always afford to go. Or you might be working in an organization that doesn't have a lot of institutional support for that kind of professional development. So using these tools to connect with other individuals, um, I think is really important. Um, so I will, you know, it has always been that, though. Like, I kind of share uh, the aversion to the digital native term. Um, there's always been some technology that's new to someone. Um, like you said, when you mentioned Photoshop, Lord, it's, it's funny, I, I, like, there's all kinds of things that I remember using as a young person <laughs> that are, are now like in the Museum of Computing. <laughs> <laughs> 
that are actually like become objects and collections and artifacts. Uh, <laughs> I try not to date myself too much. <laughs> no, no, no. There's nothing more humbling than going into a museum and seeing something that you remember using. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 in a vitrine behind glass. Yes, I can. I I I consider that the um, uh, the rotodial telephone, ladies. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of technology that becomes new, and everyone has that experience of being challenged by the the, the latest thing. Um, so I, I really don't um, feel that that's a way of distinguishing. And, and the digital divide, as they say, is still a very real thing. As Lourdes mm-hmm. mentioned, there are there are still um, huge barriers technologically to certain segments of our population. So I don't think that, that we should ever make an assumption that because someone has is a certain age or they've come up a certain way that they're going to have the same um, fluency in in those of digital languages. Um, we know that people are still struggling to, to have laptops and computers in their home. Um, as, as children now, <laughs> I really don't think that we can assume that when they, if they get to the college level that they're going to be as fluent as they should be. Interesting, interesting. Ladies, we have come to uh, that part in, in the program. We have about four minutes until close, and I always call that the lightning round. Now, of course, that is a, uh, a reference to a bygone television uh, uh, program where at the end you had to very quickly say what you needed to say, uh, I, and, it's, and it sort of turned into our lexicon, although I realize that probably most people don't know what it means. But anyway, uh, we are in our lightning round phase, and so I would like you each to, uh, very briefly, if you have one thing, to tell a person uh, just starting out in the museum profession of how they can uh, get their voice and uh, make an impact in their profession uh, and in their museum, what would you say? Uh, uh, Lourdes, let's start with you. Uh, I'm going to steal of what I'm assuming is part of Adrian's answer. And I would actually say Twitter has helped me do it. Um, different social media channels have helped me do it, have helped me connect with more senior um, members of the professional community and sharing my ideas and getting to collaborate with them either on formal or informal projects has been extremely helpful. Great, great. Uh, and I, I was just reminded, too, uh, I had Nina Simon on the on the show a couple of weeks ago, and she admitted that the reason she started her blog was that she was new to the museum profession, and she felt that if she was writing about museum issues then uh, or interviewing people for her blog, then that gave her an entree into uh, <laughs> talking to people that she didn't know, and I thought that that also was a wonderful tip. Adrian, what would you say? Uh, I would I would just uh, reiterate what Lourdes was saying. The networking is always going to be part of, of getting any kind of position, and just the, the method of networking is what's changing. Um, uh, so you you can't be afraid um, to, to introduce yourself, to engage in conversations that you find interesting, um, particularly on Twitter or any kind of social media platform. If someone's talking about something that you are interested in, then introduce yourself, speak up, join the conversation, and just don't be afraid to, to put yourself out there. Don't worry about what kind of education you have or where you may or may not have worked um, or what age you are. If you, if you feel passionate about what the discussion is, then, then go ahead and inject yourself into it. Um, you really cannot lose doing that. It, the only way you lose is if you don't say anything. No one's going to know who you are if you don't speak up. 
That's very good. And I, and I too, will give a, a piece of information and then a request to uh, my uh, generational cohort. And that is... Uh, uh, Adrian mentioned earlier that uh, she has always sought out mentors. Everyone needs to seek out a mentor, someone uh, who perhaps has some more experience, not necessarily in age, but uh, experience in the profession that you choose. Uh, I have never turned down a request uh, to be a mentor to someone. Uh, I have some short-term mentors and long-term mentor mentees, and uh, I have also... Uh, paid it forward from those people who have helped me. So everyone, uh, those in my generation, take a young person out to lunch, uh, get to know someone, uh, uh, pay it forward a little bit. Uh, perhaps we should, you just like we have take your children to the office, perhaps it is uh, take a young person to lunch, whether it's in your, your, uh, your own institution or uh, uh, someone that you know through another organization. Uh, we need, we all love music. And the way we maintain at their sustainability is to uh, teach a new generation to not only take over for us, but move things in a new way. Uh, Lourdes and Adrian, this has been a pure pleasure. Uh, I had the, the kernel of an idea for this conversation. I really had no idea where it was going, but I just knew that it was going to go a, uh, in a wonderful place, and the two of you have taken us uh, to greater understanding. So thank you both. Thank you, well, Carol. And thank you, Carol. And we will be back next week for another uh, uh, program of Museum Life. Remember, you can always reach me at carol.bossard at verizon.net. Uh, let me know what issues uh, you think we should be talking about. And I always love it when uh, my listeners uh, share with me guests that they think should be on the program. Until next week, this is Carol Bossard for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.